I invite you to now take a Bible and to open it to Genesis chapter 37. It's the first book in our Bible, but we're going to be in the 37th chapter of Genesis. We are fast approaching Easter and some of you, it's a part of your routine in this season leading up to it. You um, celebrate along with Christians throughout the world a season that is referred to as Lent, and you do that by actually fasting, and in some way, you withhold something from yourself that you might otherwise freely partake in. And uh, some of you who, who don't do that, you still like that restaurants all over the place give all-you-can-eat fish on Friday nights, and you're taking advantage of, of that opportunity, even though you're not withholding anything from yourself, per se. Some of you are just looking forward to spring break, and uh, a, a bit of a break just mentally from all the demands of school, uh, maybe even geographically, getting away from the cold, getting to a bit of warmer weather is something that you're, you're looking forward to. But it, it's the season that's approaching very, very quickly uh, that we celebrate together. <clears throat> but actually, as a church, we, we mark the resurrection and we mark Easter and all that it means every single week. We get together on a Sunday morning as a way to testify to the fact that we believe that something happened on a Sunday morning that changed everything. You can't open up your New Testament and find a command that says we're supposed to get together on a Sunday morning. That command isn't in the New Testament, and so we do it not because we were told that that's when it has to be, but Christians just through history have said, what, what better day to get together and acknowledge and celebrate what God has done for us, that Jesus arose on the first day of the week. And because he rose on that first day of the week in the morning, that that is when Christians gather together to celebrate that and acknowledge that every other day in the week is now different and changed and we can apply it differently because of what Jesus did and so we're, we're looking today at what we're going to describe as a resurrection story in the Old Testament. It's the uh, person of Joseph, and we're going to look at his life and his family. But we actually get, um, before we go to his story, there's a, a New Testament description of him that I'm going to read, and you don't have to turn there, but you can just remember in your own mind where it is and, and look it up later. But in Acts chapter 7... One of the first Christian converts whose name was Stephen was giving a a message about the history of the Old Testament. And in Acts chapter 7, and in verse 9, he said this, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So this description of Stephen, looking back on this story that we're going to go through together as a church, the story of Joseph, he says, in spite of everything that happened, what we need to know is that the only way we can explain this life and what happened in it is that God was with him. That God was with him. And so that's what we're looking at. What does it mean for God to be with us? And how does God work when life 
doesn't. When what we think and what we expect and all that we try to plan seems to fail, what does God do then? How does he work when it seems like nothing else that we can think about is working? And to consider that, we're going to the story of Joseph. What does God do when his people find himself at a complete loss and at an end of themselves, not seeing any possibility, any future, or any hope? So if you will, now we'll go to Genesis 37, and we'll read about this person, Joseph, and what it means for God to be with us. Jacob, this is Joseph's father, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, but he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture the father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I've heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then they will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And this is where we'll stop. I hope in that extended reading you are still able to follow the story and its unfolding parts, but we'll go over it in a, in a summary fashion. But this is a resurrection story, the story of Joseph. If I tell you that you're about to hear a resurrection story, I've already told you that somebody dies. Resurrections only happen to dead people. Resurrections only happen to dead circumstances and dead dreams and dead plans. The enjoyment of the power of resurrection always begins in the despair and in the decay that death is. And that's what resurrection stories are all about. They begin in death, but they end in hope. And this story, if you were able to follow along with it, starts on a really bad note, leaving us wondering what possible good could come from this. You're just reading it and you stop right there. You don't know anything about the rest of the story. That's one of the first questions you're asking yourself. What possible good could come from this? But actually, when we're introduced here in Genesis 37, Joseph is already 17 years old. There's, there's stuff that's already gone on before that, that provides us a little bit of a context of why things have gone as bad as they have. So I just want to provide a little bit of background And Joseph's background is a background of both pain and promise. Joseph's, actually, his family, if we were able to enter into it, we would see that there was one father and four mothers. And from these four mothers, there were 13 children, 12 boys, and one girl. Which, 
you think you have a mixed up family, this is a, a pretty mixed up family. And the story behind it is that his father actually had a twin brother and, and his desire to receive a blessing and, and to try to secure his own future, he actually schemed his twin brother out of his blessing and got it for himself. And in doing so, he, he sought to take care of what was yet to come, but he realized that he did it in the wrong way. And eventually, he had to repent for what he did. He had to go back to his brother and acknowledge to him that he had done something wrong. But in the period of his uh, sin and, 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 and before he repented and went back to his brother and apologized, he went to a land and found somebody that he wanted to marry. And he worked hard and to ask the father to, to marry his daughter. And the father tricked him like he had earlier tricked his brother. And so the father, instead of giving him the woman that he asked for to marry, gave him somebody else to marry. And he was completely tricked by it and surprised. And then the father said, if you want to now marry the person that you were really pursuing, you have to work for me for another seven years. And he was willing to do that. And in this society that's very different than ours today and age, and they did things differently than we do them now, back then, if there was a period of time where a family could not have children, then oftentimes somebody would step in and say, well, I'm willing to come and I'm willing to help you bear children. And so that's part of what happened, that Joseph had married two wives, but even at different times, those two wives struggled in the bearing of children, and so other people come in, that all of a sudden you have this very large family with very mixed loyalties, and we look at it and say, this is complicated. What's going to happen here? What good is going to come from this? This is just set up for there to be rivalry and division and contention between everybody. And right away, if if you don't have much familiarity with the Bible and you you just start at the beginning of the book, you're like, what do these people do? And this is is okay for them to do? I thought the Bible told you about how to have a great family. You know, that if you just do what the Bible says, then you're just going to have this beautiful, great, perfect family and, and nothing will be complicated. But this seems to be a messed up family. So are we supposed to do these kinds of things? And the answer is no. But the Bible is trying to tell us something in not hiding for us any of the bad details. It it puts it out all there for us to see and say what the Bible is trying to tell us is not ultimately how God makes good families, but what God can do in any human family. That God can do something no matter how messed up or intact a family is. That God is able to do things that we would find ourselves surprised and baffled at. And actually, before 37, just two chapters earlier, what we find out is that Joseph's own mother, in giving birth to his brother, passes away. So Joseph has a younger brother named Benjamin, but the delivery itself was so painful that his mother passes away when his younger brother is born. So this is Joseph's background. He's 17 years old. And he's got stepbrothers and stepsisters. There's mixed loyalties all throughout. And somebody who then he would have been the closest to has now passed away and is gone. 
and she's no longer there for him to lean on, for him to seek advice and counsel from. This is Joseph, 17 years old. But all along, in spite of all of this pain, there's, there's this promise on this family that God is going to do something through them. And this goes back to their great-grandfather Abraham and then the grandfather Isaac and now their father Jacob, that all along was some promise that God was going to do something through them and that through them, other people would be blessed. And when we get to Genesis 37, we look at this and say, okay, so there's all this pain and yet there's this promise that God, you're going to do something You're going to bless people through them. I just don't see how that's going to happen. They they can't even bless themselves. They don't even get along with each other. So how are you going to do something that benefits other people? And so that's the background. And then when we come to our chapter, it initially gets worse before it gets better. What we read about are broken dreams and family betrayal. Broken dreams and family betrayal. So here, Joseph, almost everything else is going wrong in his life. He's got very little to be encouraged by. But we find out that he is the favorite of his father. And his father kind of makes that known by giving him a coat that nobody else has. It's a coat of many colors. And it's this symbol to say, this is, this is one of my sons that I love in ways that I don't love my other children. Now, again, we say, is that a good thing to do? No. Well, how do we know? Well, we read the rest of the story. It doesn't work out well for Joseph that this is what his father does, but that's, that's how his father views him. He's the son from the woman that he had wanted to marry in the beginning, and so he has a special place in his heart, and he puts this coat on him. But this, it says in verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of them, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. His mom is gone. Now his father has done something to him that actually makes all of his brothers hate him and they can't speak peacefully to him. And in the midst of this, he has a good dream. He thinks it's a good dream. And after so many bad experiences, it's, hey, I want to tell, I actually had a good dream. Something good might happen. And so he tells his brother this dream, but they're bothered by the dream. It only makes them more angry and more hateful towards him because they understand the implications of the dream is that though everything seems to be against him and not going his way, one day he's going to rise up and all of them are going to in some way acknowledge the greatness of his position and or authority. And, and in his just, whether it's immaturity, whether it's just wanting to get back at them, whether it's just totally being naive, we don't know, but he shares this dream with them. And it says that they hate him all the more. So then he has another dream, and instead of learning from his first lesson, he goes ahead and tells them the dream again, and they don't like it again. They're very bothered by it. But this is the dream, that God is going to do something in his life that at this point, there's no way to see how God's going to do it, how he's going to make it happen. And so this hatred eventually spills up 
to where his brothers are out working in the field and his father says, I want you to go, I want you to check up on them and I want you to see what they're doing. And so he goes and he's traveling. He finds somebody along the way, asks for directions. Do you know where they are? Yes, I know where they are. There you go. And his brothers see him coming from afar. And so this is a long way away from where father is, from where any video cameras are, from where anybody will know what happened. And so for them, this is the opportunity to finally put him in his place, to finally show him that whatever he's been dreaming, he's just basically hallucinating because it ain't going to happen. And it says that they conspired together to put him to death. And that was their plan. That was their intention, to put an end to his dreams and say, you must have the signal wrong because we're going to make sure that never happens. And they conspire together to kill him. One of them, Reuben, says, let's not do that. Let's, we, can, we can kind of make this happen without going that far. We can get the same result, but we don't have to quite go to that extent. And so what they decide to do is to put him into a pit to make sure that they themselves aren't the murderers, aren't the killers, but they can take his coat, they can put blood on it and make his father believe that that's what's happened and whatever happens to him doesn't matter, but it's actually the blood's not on their hands, but they get what they want anyway, which is him out of the house. The dream can't come true, and they can finally have their own attention, their own time, whether with their father or out in their field. And so the story unfolds that finally these passerbys come and they say, oh, here's an idea. Let's even take it a step further. We can actually make money off of this. We can actually, so not only do we not have to kill him, but we don't even have to just leave him here. We can get something from this. And so they pick him up and they sell him to become a slave in a foreign land. They go back home and they tell their father that he's died. Their father believes their story. He sees blood on this coat. And so he despairs himself. And so this dream has been broken. There's, there's no reason for us to believe that they thought Joseph would last a very long time in slavery. This younger brother of theirs, who's not even entrusted at this point in, with any responsibilities out in the field, and maybe part of that is, is he's not somebody that you would entrust to really survive in the wilderness. He's just the, the observer. He's just the manager. But he might not have all the skills that you would want somebody to have to send out for days at a time and to do hard manual labor. And what he's just been assigned to is a guaranteed life of hard manual labor. Where the people that will require work from him, if he cannot do the work, they will not be forgiving. They will not be gentle on him. And so his prospects are really, really bleak. His family has betrayed him. His dreams are broken. But what we discover is that this is actually the beginning of a hope and a future. This is the beginning of a hope and a future. This is not the end of the story. This is how the story begins. And we'll get chapter after chapter of unfolding of what it is that God does in spite of all of this. And as we'd already seen in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives us the language 
that though his brothers were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery, God was with him. And that's the first point that we have to take away in Joseph's life. That when everything seems to be against you, if God is with you, there is still a hope and a future. When everything seems to be against you, if God is with you, there is still hope and a future. That none of us can come and say, you know, I'd love to do great things for God, but you don't know where I come from. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know how I've lost the people that are closest to me. You have no idea what week I just had. And you want to tell me that there's still the possibility of a hope and a future. And that's the lesson. That yes, there's no circumstance or situation or sin in your past or mine that can limit what God can do with your or my future. And that even when everything we've tried to do to make our future better fails, and so it doesn't seem like life is working out like it was supposed to, that's actually when God does his best work. That's when he says, I'm, I'm ready to step into this situation and show you that I'm not limited like you are. I'm not bound in the ways that you are. And what you think of as death and therefore the end, I see as just the beginning of an even better and greater story than you could possibly imagine. But not only is it the beginning of hope and a future, it's also the beauty of resurrection and grace. You see, there's a way that in our own hearts we can read this story and say, okay, you're saying it gets better, right? And something new is going to happen. There's going to be this resurrection. Well, I can't wait to read when Joseph finally gets back and then gets back to all of his brothers. That's a good story. I can't wait till he can finally go after all of those who've hurt him. But a resurrection story is not a revenge story. What we have to wrestle with here in the beginning is if it's possible that these family members who've betrayed their brother could ever one day have a relationship again with each other, would they even want it? Would you even want it? If somebody could come to you and say, the people in your life that have harmed you the most, that, that you thought you could lean on and count on and who did something wrong to you, if it was possible to in some way be reconciled, Is that a desire of your heart or mine? Or do we want revenge? I just just want them to pay for what they did. Because one of the the easiest things for us to do when we come to an Old Testament story like this is say, you know, I kind of feel like Joseph. I kind of feel like everything's going against me and I'm going through hard times. But actually, all throughout, there's ways that we're going to resonate with Joseph but we should also resonate with the brothers and say we're actually the ones who have betrayed someone close to us all of us have experienced sin against us and all of us have sinned against someone and so what we should long for and what we should hope for in a resurrection story is that there is also reconciliation, that there is also grace. 
Is there a future, not only for Joseph, but for Joseph's brothers? Is there a future for them? Them that conspired together in opposition against their brother when they had no reason to? And as we will unfold this story in the weeks to come, the answer is yes and yes. And it's why this story links so well with this time of year as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. Because his resurrection was not a resurrection to come back and say, now I'm going to get after all of those people that put me here. And all of those people that betrayed me, that lied to me, that walked away from me when I needed them the most. If that was the story, we wouldn't be getting together on any morning to celebrate. We wouldn't have a meal worth partaking in. We wouldn't have songs worth singing. If it was a revenge story, then we ourselves would be condemned. He'd be coming after us. But the good news of what we get to share is that not only has Jesus risen again from the dead, but in his rising from the dead, he has grace toward all those who have harmed him. He has grace towards all those who deserted him, all those who betrayed him, and all those who are guilty of his death. And so in conclusion, I'll invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7 to see this description that Stephen gives. On page 914, In Acts chapter 7. Beginning in verse 9 we read, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions And gave him favor, which is a word that we could also translate grace and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his house. But that's where we're going to stop. And so God was with him. With him to bring something out of nothing to give him the grace that he would need to overcome this, to give him the wisdom that he would need to overcome this. And so the challenge for us is we're, we're beginning and we're, we're trying not to finish the story too quickly is just to start by asking ourselves, are we open to God working a resurrection story within us that we can live in spite of our sin, in spite of our background, and that we can live in such a way that we can reconcile and bring grace and favor and wisdom even to situations and to people that have harmed us. If we believe that this is how God works, this is his pattern throughout all the Bible and throughout all of history, then we would be people that one, can acknowledge our brokenness. We can acknowledge our sin. We can acknowledge our mixed experiences, our bad backgrounds, whatever they are. We can say, God, I don't have to put on a show for you. I can just tell you this is exactly who I am. This is exactly what I'm dealing with. Here it is. This is the mess. This is the chaos that goes on in my mind. Can you create anything good and anything beautiful out of this? 
And his answer again and again is yes. That's where the Bible starts. Out of the chaos that was in the world, God created something beautiful. And out of the chaos that comes from our sin and our circumstances, God can breathe the beauty of his resurrection and his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to see that your power to work begins when our power ends. That when we have nothing left to give, you haven't even begun to get exhausted or tired or impatient. That you can work around any circumstance, around any situation, that you can work in spite of any sin. And so we pray that you would help us. That you would help us to trust you to trust what you're doing, to trust that when it seems like life is out of control and things are racing away from us, that you know exactly what you're doing and that you can make something beautiful out of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.